Now what? Now what? Now what? Now what? Now what? Welcome, you're listening to the Now What Society, a weekly podcast dedicated to women who want to explore their edge, seek more, and laugh at their mistakes, all while choosing an alcohol-free life. We're glad you're here. We'd love to have you. Let's get into this week's episode. Hello, and thank you for joining us on another episode of the Now What Society. My name is Tamar Medford, and I'm joined by my co-host, Lane Kennedy. Now, today we have a really special episode for you. And actually, the next few weeks, you're going to get to listen in on an episode of Time Takes Time. Now, Lane had recorded these and put them up on her podcast called The Connected Calm Life. But we thought there is so much gold in these episodes and so much so much that you can take away that we wanted to share these with you. So today we're going to be starting off with values and we're going to be getting into a couple other great topics that if you're, maybe you are sober today and you just want to hear from those who have been doing this for a long time, or maybe you're thinking about what it would be like to live an alcohol-free life, here are some insights on what it means to live in long-term recovery and to just continue to evolve in this journey. I hope you enjoy. And I'm thrilled to be sharing this episode with you called Time Takes Time. And I'm gathered here with four of my besties, and you've listened to them on the podcast before. But today we're going to go deeper into topics that perhaps will help you on your emotional wellness journey and in your recovery. So today I'm being joined by Elise Bryson, Amy Liz Harris, Catherine Just, and Christina Dennis. Hello, beautiful friends. Hi. Hi. Hello. Elise, you want to kick us off? Sure. I'm so happy to be here this morning, Lane. Uh, my name is Elise Bryson. I hail from the great, beautiful Emerald City of Seattle. And I am the founder of The Sober Curator, which is a lifestyle blog that curates content specifically for those living an alcohol-free life. My sobriety date is May 1st, 2006. Beautiful. Thank you. And Amy. Hi, everybody. I'm Amy Liz Harrison, and I am the author of Eternally Expecting, A Mom of Eight Gets Sober and Gives Birth to a Whole New Life, Her Own. And my sobriety date is April 23rd, 2011. And I am just overjoyed and thrilled to be here. Thanks. Thanks, Amy. And Christina. Hi, I'm Christina Dennis, and I'm a recovery coach uh, and expert in breaking codependent patterns. I'm mother, and uh, my sobriety date is May 6, 1997. Elise, we're May babies together. Yay! <laughs> and Catherine. Hi, I'm Catherine Just. I'm in Los Angeles. I'm a single mama of a little dude named Max who's 12 years old and has Down syndrome. I'm an artist, photographer, entrepreneur, activist, spiritual guide. <laughs> and um, my sobriety date is August 18th, 1987. 
Beautiful. And my name is Lane Kennedy and I am the Calm Coach. My sober date is 12-31-1996. I am forever grateful for that date. So this panel has been curated. Uh, I'm thrilled to have each of these women with me today to share about their journey in recovery. And I've collected some questions. And we're going to go around talking about what it means to be in long-term recovery. What are the obstacles, the challenges, and how do we thrive in sobriety? So we're going to kick it off with what are the what were your top three values in early recovery, and then we're going to fast forward to your your values now. Anybody want to start with that one? Because for me, my values in early recovery were like, let's have fun. I got to have fun because I was dying. <laughs> but I've actually still, I'm still carrying that value of fun today. And I'm super grateful for that. Elise, did you have values when you first got sober? I, did I have values when I first got sober? <laughs> That's a really good question. Um, well, I valued coffee. Um, and I was not that particular of how good it was because uh, I drank a lot of really bad coffee in the beginning. Um, I think what I valued the most was my relationship with my son. He was a big motivator for me um, to get sober. And I, I noticed when you were all doing introductions, you all talked about being a mom and I didn't. And that shows you I'm annoyed with my son today. And mm -hmm. so that's why I didn't bring him up. Um, but I think the value was just, I valued not being hung over on Saturday mornings mm -hmm. or on Tuesday mornings or any morning really. Um, and I valued trying to do things differently, but I didn't, I didn't have any idea what that meant. Yeah. It was a new concept. Like I didn't understand values until I was probably 20 years sober. Christina. Absolutely. Any, any I, I was thinking I valued not being scared. That was a big one. I valued not losing time, knowing exactly where I was mm -hmm. the night before, knowing exactly what I said. I was trying to value uh, an honest way of living because that had seemed to be one of the things that I was being taught. You know, I was trying to be in my body, but frankly, I was still chasing uh, accomplishments and determining my value by other people's opinions. But I definitely enjoyed not being hungover. I enjoyed not stealing somebody's boyfriend. I enjoyed not sleeping with people I didn't know, you know, all of those yeah. things and felt really good about it. That's like the beginning of our self-esteem journey, yeah. right? When, when we get here, we're kind of like just tore up so much. And then like not sleeping with somebody's partner. Right. <laughs> Epic. It's huge. Huge. Yeah. Catherine. Yeah, you? you got sober really young. So let's hear about, you know, what that was like. What did you even identify with a value? Well, the, when you said that, I'm like, well, my value was fuck this shit. Like, <laughs> seriously, fuck this shit. It was 1987. So I had big hair. So Aquanet Super Extra Hold hairspray was a value. <laughs> yes. Big bangs, big bangs, wearing all black. 
was a value. Um, I was just angry. I was angry at everybody, every person, place, thing. And I had, you know, I still wasn't, it still wasn't about me yet. <laughs> but I, I didn't want to die. Like my, I heard a voice in, in my head that said, there's more to this life than what you're living. And that was it. That was the, the, the leader that, and it still is. So I don't know about values yet. I didn't have any, you add alcohol and I don't know what's going to happen. Right. Right. So. And I love that you just brought in the hairspray. Uh, because I was, uh, what is that show? The sex in the city, uh, just came into play just again, like right? Just like that. Right. And so I was sent back in time to my early recovery where I got sober with Carrie and like lived with the, the fashion and the hair and the lipstick and the Mac Mac lipstick. Like that was my value. Like I had to have lipstick on yes. my every moment. Yes. How about you, Amy? What was going on with you? Well, I was busy watching copious um, amounts of episodes of intervention <laughs> and trying to convince myself that I wasn't as bad as the people on that show. I was probably okay. So I had a lot of justification going on when I first got sober and, um, or when I was uh, reaching my bottom, I guess. And so in terms of values, when I just, you know, finally got to the point where I was sick and tired of being sick and tired, the big deal for me was just to get out of trouble. At that point, you know, I had legal issues. I had to build consistency into my life and I wasn't used to that at all. I was used to just kind of doing, you know, spontaneous, um, crazy things and tugging my children along with me. And then um, I guess the other thing I would say is just, um, you know, starting to get comfortable with being uncomfortable and realizing that that was okay. That was a really big deal for me um, to not worry so much about what other people thought. I think that's constant. Mm -hmm. Right? How about anybody else? Like anybody still worrying about what other people are thinking of you? Never. <laughs> we're not supposed to worry about that i'm confused i know <laughs> oh i think as we move through our sober years and we discover ourselves like a, a myriad of things occur and i want to get to one thing over the years that has been profound to your recovery and perhaps you thought oh i'm going out on this has there been something really challenging in your life over the years? What is it? And did you think a drink would make it better? I definitely had that in my seventh year. My son was born um, and, you know, I felt like he was the promises, right? I'd done everything in the right order. I'd gotten <laughs> married before I got pregnant. I had moved in after we were married. We had bought a home. We had a 401k and then his diagnosis of autism came. And uh, it was, I really, really had to sit and face my anger because up until that point, I still thought being a good girl is what kept me safe. I still believed that if I did all these good things and was of service and did the right things and stayed sober, that nothing bad was going to happen to me. And it was the strangest thing to have the most painful thing that happened to me in the package of the most beautiful thing that happened to me. And I had a choice, you know, I could go out, but I knew that would only complicate things. I could try to take the edge off. 
I, but I knew that would only make me less of a mother. And instead I dug into my sobriety and realized I had to become even more connected to a higher power, to a God. Um, and I needed to learn the lessons that were necessary within this. And, you know, he's 17 now, but it was the most beautiful thing and the hardest thing that I've ever had to do. Giving birth. I mean, we're all moms here. That was a game changer. Anybody else have that game changing moment? Yep. Like I thought I was going to die. Seriously. The, for two years of his life, I thought I'm, I'm pulling the plug on this one. Anybody? Yes. Well, I, I was going to say I gave birth and found out my son had Down syndrome 20 minutes after he was born. And um, 20 minutes? 20 minutes. That's what it yeah, took. I wasn't looking at the clock at the time, but it was <laughs> 20 minutes. <laughs> and, um, um, and, uh, and I didn't know what that meant because of how people with Down syndrome have been treated up to that point. They just get taken away or put away or given away or whatever. Um, and so I didn't know what that meant, but um, um, I don't know that that was the most painful moment in my recovery, but it was definitely, it definitely was up there. But I, I want to say that I have not thought about drinking as a way to leave the intensity of the pain that occurs in my life. Yeah. Um, I think of not being here anymore because I just go right to that because I already know what drinking does and I don't want to do that. Mm -hmm. I, it, it doesn't appeal to me. I, the, the craving was lifted when I got sober. The only time I got jealous of people drinking was sex in the city when they were drinking. I got sober when I was 18. I had no idea what it was like to order a drink at a bar. Like I don't have that. I, I didn't have like friends that, that got together all the time and, and had the pink drink in the pretty glass. So, the, so I felt a little like, wow, what was that like? But, um, but the question really about taking the edge off with the drink doesn't, that doesn't occur to me, but it gets darker than that. And I think that it's the same thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I love that you said that because that reminds me of, uh, you know, the feeling I had, which was, I don't want to die, but I didn't want to live anymore. Yeah. And that feels even yeah. scarier than death. Right, right. For me, I think that the biggest change in starting to find my way and find my path in recovery is that when those times hit, I have tools now. And I just didn't have any tools before getting sober. I just kind of floated my way through life and thought people were going to just help me out if I smiled at them and gave them some kind of, you know, BS excuse or whatever. And, and really just did not have a sense of life unfolding in my favor and what I mean by that is maybe it's not always going to go the way I think it should go. <laughs> and so I think I just kind of had to surrender to over and over again, so many of those um, just uh, challenges that kept coming up and just kind of going, okay, I don't understand why this is happening and I may never, but it's happening. And so, you know, that is kind of what helped introduce me to meditation and yoga and all of the various, you know, tools at our disposal. And we have so many, and then the, you know, the fellowship opportunities in getting to share those tools with each other. Mm -hmm. Can I say something about that? 
because that that I I think that's such a really that really good point that when I get to that place of darkness and it gets dark really it's like in 0.5 seconds I'm down the rabbit hole of doom it's I'm so good at it you know I think we're all here can relate to that um and then I think oh like right past that I have a little smirk inside of me like this is a contraction before some expansion. I don't even know what's going to happen, but it better be good because this sucks right now. Yeah. And so, and I have like evidence of that through my recovery that like every single time I'm on my knees, so to speak, that, that there is something that I couldn't have ever fathomed or imagined would be become my life or become a deeper part of how I am in the world that I didn't think was possible. So um, in the same, in the same way, like we have these tools, but one of them is awareness of, of you know having longer term recovery we we get to see the result of not choosing over and over again to take ourselves out in whatever way that we would do that which i think is a great the great gift of of having a little bit more time is that that knowing mm-hmm. it is that knowing elise do you want to add yeah i um you know it's it's i i feel like in the journey of recovery, things happen. Like for me, it's been at the five-year mark, the 10-year mark. Like there's these these chunks of time that really stand out uh, amidst all of it. And, um, and I've, I've already heard my story, you know, at the five-year mark, I really hit this um, pretty intense bout of depression that I'm certain I had hit that level before. I just had always been intoxicated or on something and didn't, I wasn't really in it. Um, and it, it, at that five-year mark, I didn't, I didn't want to drink cause I knew what that got me. I just didn't want to live. Mm-hmm. And there was this moment I was pulling on to, I had missed my ferry and I was uh, in the very front line for the next ferry. We're up here in the Pacific Northwest. We travel by ferry and, uh, which sounds magical, doesn't it? But, um, <clears throat> and I remember in this moment thinking I could just drive on and drive off the other side, like Thelma mm, and yes. Louise. And I was terrified that I was going to do it and I wasn't going to be able to stop myself. Mm -hmm. Um, And thankfully, you know, I called my sponsor at the time and she stayed on the phone with me and, and things happened from there. Um, At the 10 year mark, um, I had a really bad run in this like three month period of time. Well, in a one week period of time, I had emergency heart surgery at the age of 40. Mm -hmm. Two days later, my son was diagnosed with Crohn's disease. Then our dog went to the emergency vet. And then a month later, I got a concussion and our TV broke. And then a month later, my son had this major surgery and we were in the hospital for a week and then came home from that. And two days later, our dog died. Hmm. And it was like, all of these terrible things were happening. And I, I, I was just trying to hold it together up until the dog died. And the dog dying yeah. just flattened me. It just flattened me. And again, it wasn't wanting to drink. Drinking was never going to be the solution. I just, I just didn't know if I wanted to live, you know? And so that's the thing. That's the thing as your, as long-term recovery goes on, that's what we're up against. That's so, so I had my best, my best friend, my dog, uh, Jackson pass when I was, uh, he was with me for uh, 14 years of my recovery and he passed and I thought I'm going to just unplug. There is something really 
so true about that. Like the dog, there's something about the relationship with the animals that we have in our sobriety that are profound. Not, nothing I had anticipated, expected, uh, but death in general is hard. Has anyone had like a loved one or a member of their community pass on sober? Yeah, my dad, mm -hmm. I, well, my dad passed away two years ago. Um, but before that, like one of my best friends in recovery died of sepsis um, and there was nothing I could do. Like I had to detach from what was happening. I, I couldn't help her. Her bottom was so far down. I, I didn't even relate and it made me shaky. Mm -hmm. so that that's also like it it is hard to watch somebody in active addiction that you have seen have a different experience of living mm -hmm. and my dad's death I actually just was grateful that I was sober and and could be there even though he you know I just wanted him to not be suffering anymore he had been suffering for the last two years of his life so you know it's fascinating how I have a, a memory imprinted uh, when I was first getting sober in my early years of sobriety, uh, there was a whole crew of people who would hang out and we would go to movies and barbecues and the whole lot. And there was one uh, in, in particular, one person and he went off the rails and he had a gun in his house and he was shooting his house and he ended up taking his life. And nobody anticipated this relapse. Nobody expected him to take his life. But I have this memory of him being so engaged with his program of recovery. He would be the person who would go sit down to the, to the newcomer who would be shaking, you know, with the, with the bag in their hand still drinking. And he would say, it's okay, you're going to get through this. And so I want to shift a little bit to what do we do and how do we help those people who come up against mental illness? You know, because mental illness is what we're dealing with as people in recovery. We have addiction, right? So how can we, you know, take this alcohol-free lifestyle that we're all living in sobriety and, and care for our mental illness and take away the stigma? What are you guys doing for this? Well, for me, it's always the pursuit of loving myself more more capably, more efficiently, more effectively. I feel like that's literally what we could, you know, pull teenagers out of school and say, look, the next 10 years of your life need to be dedicated to you learning how to love you exactly who you are. And self-care is an action for me. I learned that from my first sponsor 24 years ago. Self-care is an action. And so whether you feel like it or don't, you get up and you do what you need to do to show care for yourself. And my son really taught me this because his nervous system demanded, I mean, he didn't sleep for 12 years. And so there were definitely times where I would be incredibly threadbare, but I would know I have to make that one meeting. I have to sit down and write. I have to, you know, because of what I had learned in sobriety. And so I think that, boil down any coach's program, any self-help book, it would be, how do you learn how to love yourself more and go after it? Was there a self-love class in high school that I just didn't show up for? No, there should have been. <laughs> Nobody talks about self-love. Nobody talks mm -mm. about self-esteem. Nobody talks about, it's, it's like there's a competition. 
Right? Yeah. There's a competition to be the cheerleader or be the best basketball player, right? There's a, there's this competitive spirit, but there's no no self-love, no self-esteem. No, it's really sad to me. And so much is about accomplishments and achievements, right? And I'm always thinking that even my kids will come home and, you know, talk to me about these different, you know, and where they are on the GPA, you know, list and the curriculum for this and that. And I keep sort of feeling like, you know, we've totally got the the cart before the horse, you know, because, um, you know, if you look at other countries and they take this mental health thing more seriously, right. And, and happiness and finding that spirit of inner peace. And I kind of feel like in some ways, um, yeah, we've got it a little bit backward here. And so, I don't know, I try and do what I can um, in the home, but it's tough. I think it's just getting tougher. It's just really a difficult path to navigate, I think. Hmm. Becomes heavy. Knowing that we're up against this every day and the world is not making it easier for us. Yeah. Uh, so what do we think about you know, we, we're all in long-term recovery. What do we think about this term? Do we like the term long-term recovery? I, I like swear I never. Sexier. I think it could be sexier. <laughs> I mean, do you identify as somebody in long-term recovery? Do you identify as somebody in recovery? How, what's your identification? Because there's this whole movement of alcohol-free life, right? This movement of people who are uh, getting sober on their own. And I come from traditional uh, sobriety, 12-step based, but there's this this awakening, which is so beautiful. And I identify as a member of a 12-step program and I live in long-term recovery. What, how are you all identifying? You know what, it's changed for me over the, over the years because at 10 years, I have to say, you know, I got, I went to treatment. I flew to Minnesota from San Diego and went to a halfway house for eight months because I didn't know how to be here. Um, and I didn't want to yet, <laughs> like I wanted to be sober, but I didn't want to. So anyway, it was teaching me how to show up in the world. And then I went to art school and you guys were talking about earlier, like, um, how we cope with the mental health situation. Mm -hmm. And I, and I just wanted to say a little bit about that too, just that I was crawling out of my skin. I felt like there was a layer of skin missing. I didn't know how to be here or look people in the eyes or have conversations or friendships. So like the whole thing was like bizarro. So I'm grateful that I, had an art class in high school that then turned into, you know, going to college after I got sober and learning how to use photography as my medicine and self-portraiture and all of that stuff to sort of process my, my stuff. Um, and then on top of it, though, I, I, I would tell everyone I was in recovery in the beginning. It was like my, that was the way that I stayed sober was to not have any, there was no trap door anywhere. <laughs> and then when I got to 10 years, I mean, I didn't want to be here. There was a moment where I didn't want to be here anymore. And I, I met Miguel Ruiz who wrote the four agreements and I studied with him. And then I started to not call myself anything because I realized that I was holding on to this story of my past that had nothing to do with the present, but I still didn't want to drink or use it. I knew that if I added alcohol based on the past, there would be an issue, but I didn't want to use that as my identifier for a long time. And it wasn't until recently that I started saying it again with fervor <laughs> because I realized that my work here really, and it always has been, that 
I want to reach the other, another person like me who doesn't know that that darkness can be something else, that there is another way. And if I don't mm-hmm. sort of raise the flag and say, I've been there by saying those terms, mm-hmm. then that person might not see me. Yeah. So I feel like it's super important now. Yeah, the, the power of identification. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I never even heard of the term long-term recovery until I met Lane on Clubhouse and then heard people using it. I was in my 24th year, not realizing that I had what they call long-term recovery, (laughs) Uh, you know, really not interested in the phrasing at all. And because my focus has been recovering from, you know, adult child, you know, wounds, uh, codependency, I had taken my eye off the idea of consuming alcohol or even worrying about what other people were doing. You know, the first couple of years, everyone's an alcoholic who picks up a drink. (laughs) If you're an alcoholic, everybody is. And then after a while, I realized I was working with a lot of people that didn't have a problem with consuming alcohol. The recovery was the important part the ability to, you know, look back and have some self-awareness and walk through your wounding and healing. And that's tends to be my focus. And I don't often think about it, but I love what I heard from you, Catherine, which is in, for me, it was clubhouse, me getting back into rooms with newcomers, how helpful it is to be an example of how wonderful and hard (laughs) and beautiful and difficult life can be without you know, checking out on a, you know, evening basis, a daily basis, which is what I was. I was a daily drinker. And so I, I will take that with the reverence and the seriousness of it is that I believe that it deserves that I will be able to help people save their lives. And so me being the baby of the group, because I only have 10 years, I did not only that's a lot, (laughs) but you guys, you know, I, I'm actually in most of the fellowship meetings that I go to, I have a lot of um, friends who have long-term sobriety, also more like, um, you know, decades like you all have. And the thing that inspires me the most and encourages me the most is when people share what is going on in their here and now, and just even like, you know, I had a bad attitude when this happened, or I reacted when this happened, even though I know it wasn't about this, it was about that. And that helps me so much because it reminds me that I'm not on a linear journey. I'm not going to reach an end point where they're going to give me a crown and have a big ceremony for me because I passed the test. You know what I mean? And I think that uh, growing up in a religious background, that was kind of like, it was always this competition, like this, you know, holiness competition, who can do the most things and run the most Bible studies. And, and again, kind of going back to that achievement-based school stuff um, is sort of, it, it was this kind of pursuit of, okay, let me figure out how to do the sobriety thing right. Okay, let me figure out who's going to be the best sponsor for me. And, you know, who's working in the recovery field, you know, who's a, who's a, um, a CDP and who's a, who's a counselor. And, you know, and, and I had to let all of those preconceived ideas go. I realized pretty quickly that was going to get me nowhere. And really what I just needed was a tiny bit of like willingness to follow direction and to get honest about all of that stuff, because I really had a lot of um, masks on that um, just covered up who I really was. And, 
and becoming that wounded healer, you know, from somebody who even has a couple days fewer than I had, um, that was a, that was a big deal. And it still is to this day for me, just a big, big deal. One drunk talking to another. Yeah. Elise, do you have anything to add? Well, what's coming up for me is that, that we, we have a responsibility, right? Um, because there's not very many people in long-term recovery and there's especially not very many women in long-term recovery. Um, and prior to the pandemic, when my only real exposure for fellowship and connection was a 12-step room, mm-hmm. um, I can remember there being times where I was, I didn't have, I, I needed to get a new sponsor. My sponsor had moved to another state. FaceTime wasn't a thing yet. Zoom wasn't a thing yet. And I needed that eyeball to eyeball connection. And I remember going hunting for a new sponsor and thinking, but where are they? I just need, I just need one that has more time than me. Um, and thankfully I ended up finding her in a, in my own place of employment. So lucky me, but like, there's not a lot of us out there. So I think that shows a couple of things. Number one, it's really fucking hard (laughs) and it's, and you, and it, and it doesn't, it's not about discipline. It's really about perseverance. Um, and, and that we have a responsibility to be vocal, to let people know that it's possible, right? Um, Cause I remember coming in, you know, hearing women that had 10 years or 20 years thinking, yeah, no, that's, I, there's, that's not, I'm not gonna be able to do that, but I can do today, you know? Um, and I've just been doing today a lot, um, but I think, I don't know. I think we have a certain responsibility. Um, and that, that also freaks me out because I don't like being responsible. We do. We have a responsibility to show up and help others. People were there for us, right? When we showed up, uh, which brings me to, uh, how do I want to phrase this? I was taught to keep my sobriety hidden, right? I was taught to keep it at my chest and just stay within these lines. And as I've progressed in my recovery, you know, I think I was like 19 years sober when I finally really came out to people I worked with. And then it's taken me another couple of years to actually come out online. And and then the pandemic hit and I was like, I'm over this. I know that there is a woman and she is hiding in her closet and she is drinking a bottle and her kids are screaming right now. Right. So that was kind of my moment of things need to change. And so I want to shift this conversation to how sobriety is changing, how we're seeing this movement of change and this thread of 12 step is it going to survive, right? Are people going to be consistent with it? And what is that 12 step? Like, what is it about that modality that is life-changing? Because for me, that changed my life. And I hear it through the giants that are, you know, when I say giants, people who have more time than me, they go back to the principles and the foundation of those steps, right? It's a spiritual uh, book, 
that was divinely inspired, I believe. And so as we move in our lives, all these new people are coming into play and getting sober and doing it online. What do we think about that? What, like, where, where are you guys at with all of this? I'd like to share about that. Yes, Catherine. So I got sober in AA and uh, that's the only thing there was. There were no cell phones or right. <laughs> internet. <laughs> oh my God. Um, I graduated college in 1992 and then we had to take Photoshop to exit. And I was like, what the hell would we want to do that for? You know, like I was into, you know, I'm a film photographer. I'm, you know, that's my, that's my background anyway. And, um, and now everything is on the phone and there are so many programs now um, that aren't really programs, but they're online sort of communities of people that maybe, I mean, they, it's not AA base, it's another something. Um, and I'm in them. Um, and what I found is that it really made me realize what I got out of AA. And, it, and, and I didn't really realize until I saw what was happening yeah. in these other rooms. And it's not that nothing's happening in those rooms, but when the bottom drops out, there's no foundation underneath to catch people because of that spiritual thing. And that it's not about me working it out on my own and just talking about my stuff with other people to try to fix it. It's not about us as humans. It's also about the, the thing that we cannot name, you know, the, the spiritual element of the program where we start doing the steps and doing what's suggested and doing things that we normally would not do um, and, and do contrary actions. Like all the, all the things that I didn't really realize were everything. <laughs> like you don't realize that that is how you're living until you see people that don't have that foundation sort of like trying to make their way through without it. And I, I do respect everybody's way. Like, I don't think that it's, it's this way or that, but for me, I noticed that I have like slid myself right back into those into the AA and feeling like oh my god thank god I already had this thank god I already had this and I and I'm in the rooms again online thank god we have internet now so that I can just show up anytime I want all over the world mm -hmm. I mean I don't have to I don't have to put on pants but um <laughs> but I think that's a big you know, I'm, I'm hosting in another online community that's not a program, but they are saving each other's lives in a different way than, and I don't know that that would have helped me back then. Like the AA saved my life. You just brought up a really good, interesting point. I, you know, in AA we're taught, or I was taught, I'll keep it to me, that uh, I show up. And so yeah. I had this discipline of showing up or, you know, washing the cups or removing the ashtrays, right? Like all these little tiny micro actions that weren't exactly like yelled at me or, you know, I wasn't scolded about it wasn't right. But I learned how to live my life. And I'm, oh, I'm just so curious about these programs. If they're teaching like the skill set of life, I, I kind of get lost with that. I don't, I don't know anybody else in, involved in the groups or what, what do you think about this? I am. And, um, well, I'm involved in 12 step fellowship. That's, I also got sober through AA and, um, you know, there were a lot of things I did way early on that I was like, how the hell does this relate to me? You know, my sponsor would tell me, okay, I want you to clean out your sock drawer. If I'd call her up and I'd had a big story, for her, you know, and I'm like, 
are you on crack? Like, I, why do I need to cook up? I just need this person to behave the way I want them to behave, you know? And I couldn't see what was happening. But of course, you know, over time, and then of course, in hindsight, seeing those seeds being sown. And the thing is, if I went to somewhere, you know, that didn't have any kind of uh, way to treat my mental state and my head, and my spiritual life was so broken, you know, I had that spiritual malady and all of that. I'm, I mean, this is what still gives me the most trouble is, is my head, you know, and me believing false narratives and all of that stuff. And, and, and because of what I have gleaned from AA, I think it's just so much easier to see those things now, see those patterns of behavior, especially the fourth step. And, you know, seeing my part in some of my resentments, that was huge for me. That was life-changing. And, um, you know, I love that there are so many different options. I know in this day and age, I sound like I'm a thousand years old, but, you know, some of the language is tough in the big book for newcomers and some of the, you know. Why um, is that? Because it was tough for me. I know. Right? I I think, are they a special group of people now? Like, I don't understand this. I know. I think it's just, it's even more off-putting, you know, because of the current climate that we're in, but that's just my own two cents. I don't really know. Um, I really like the idea of take what you need and leave the rest because, you know, find the treasure inside of it. I, you know, change the wording to fit what, what, what works for you and feels more appropriate because, because it does save lives. At least that's my opinion. And, and I'm a Jew inside AA where they say it's not religious. And I'm like, you know, reading the prayers. I'm like, this doesn't know. And they have a Christmas tree in the corner and they say they're not affiliated. I'm like, where's the menorah? Like, <laughs> you know, it's been that way the whole yeah. time. Yeah, and there are contradictions all yeah, through all it. But through it. Yeah. yeah, I agree with the mindset. Some of the other programs, I think, stay at mindset. And my mind is pretty broken. And really, I need the spiritual solution. And that is what what the 12 steps brought me and AA was just the beginning and they and it never ever says it's going to be more than just the beginning. I mean, that's literally what it says. More will be revealed. So quickly going into other programs that helped me figure out relationships and how to heal the wounds at a deeper level, like I brought up ACOA, the, the 12 steps though, is a t- spiritual technology that I don't think I've, I feel I, I feel like, okay, abstinence from alcohol can be achieved, but to live a sober life, there needs to be a spiritual solution. And without a spiritual awakening, I feel like you're always coming from behind when you're trying to fight it. Like that stuff still shows up because drinking wasn't my problem. Life was my problem. So if somebody just took away the drinking, I still had all of these problems and I do see the fellowships of other groups and I, and by no means am I, am I uh, trying to sound judgy here. It just feels to me like I had, I was so blessed with the 12 steps and there was so much healing that has happened that um, I would love it if people like pick up the book and give it a chance. Yes. Yeah. Can we define sober right now real quick? Like our, give our own definition of what sober sobriety means. Everybody's scared. <laughs> scary. like free of mind and mood altering drugs for me. And I include alcohol within that, but I don't know. That's just a starting place. 
At least so not so not California sober. Not sober sober sober. Yeah, sober actual sober sober. But I mean that being said, and I hope this is okay for me to say, but I do take medication for you know postpartum depression and for ADHD. And I take it prescribed as prescribed and with a doctor, you know, and all of that. And, you know, of course, there are some rogue um, things out there where people want to play doctor and tell their sponsees to go off their medication and stuff, which I just think is the biggest warning sign ever. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. please don't do that. Um, But yeah, for me, that's that's what it is, is yeah, not California sober, but sober, sober. Yeah. You know what? I find it real. I'm not California. I'm sober, sober. I didn't even know what that. I'm from California, but, I didn't, that's but a, you're not California sober. <laughs> that's a new thing. Yeah, um, but um, there are a lot of people microdosing now um, mm-hmm. in their recovery, and it's a big thing, like big, big, big. And and I think, wow, that's incredible. It's incredible that they have found that that works, and that they're you you know it's it's similar in that they're not just going off to do it, but they have somebody helping them go through yeah. it, like people that have done the work and are experts in that field. And yet for me, I just don't find that I'm missing anything. Um, I don't feel like I have to go down that road to get more enlightened. Um, And I think I'm grateful that, you know, like Christina said about AA is the beginning. I I agree with that because I did go into the Toltec practice and I'm glad that Miguel Ruiz is a Toltec teacher who believed that um, we don't need any mood altering drugs to get to enlightenment. And if we do, think that that drug is going to take us that that far we don't realize our own power um then we're still relying on this thing outside of us to take us somewhere that is actually already inside of us it's already right here and i think that for me i think because i'm such a hardcore like (laughs) i'm sober no matter fucking what and um uh, i just don't i'm just grateful that i i i i have a solid understanding of what sobriety means for me and that I don't I don't I don't need to I feel like it would be tricking myself I'd be manipulating myself just like we all we're so good at it aren't we Mm -hmm. to manipulate Mm -hmm. our own selves into thinking that it's another way of healing I just for me it's not Mm -hmm. Elise um I think what what I'm thinking about is I can't really judge you guys like ladies. Sorry, I guess I shouldn't say guys. I, it's hard for me when I see someone who is just abstaining from alcohol or who have done work. I mean, dry drunks, we, we can see them. Mm -hmm. We know them. And I, I know you spot it. You got it. Yeah. I got all of that, (laughs) but like, I can see when somebody, all they've done is put the bottle down and they haven't done anything else. And I can see it because I was that person for the first several years. I faked it, right? And so while I can appreciate there are all different paths to recovery now, at the end of the day, you can see who's actually doing the work on themselves and who's not. Like it's, yeah. you can see it. And, and I try really hard not to judge it. And it doesn't make my recovery better than somebody else's. I just feel for them because it's like, oh, I've been through that. And it's like, I just, I just want people to get through it quickly because it is really painful it, 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 until you realize that you're the problem. The rest, it's just really painful. So painful. Um, and there's just no, 
there's just nothing you can do to fix that without, um, in my experience, you know, a spiritual awakening. I'm, I'm really glad that you said that. Cause I actually think that all modalities, you know, I, I can only speak for what works for me. And if it works for other people, that's so amazing. I like my hat goes off to the people that have a beautiful experience of being comfortable in their own skin um, and taking responsibility, you know, all the things that you were just saying. Um, and, and I, I think that we just have to be honest with, for me, I don't change unless I'm, I'm on the floor, like face down on the pavement, yeah. like the pain has to be so great. So the people that actually are doing sobriety in a way that is leading to pain that we're watching, we're watching it. Mm -hmm. We don't actually know what their journey is supposed to be or, or what that's about. And I think that I can get sort of like holier than thou about like, well, this is the way that I, you know, and I have to remember that um, I'm not God either. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what their what their journey is supposed to be, but I, I definitely don't want people to suffer, but I can't know how long they're supposed to suffer until they get the message or how long they're supposed to suffer until they decide to try something else or ask for help. You know, it takes Christina. me a long time, you know. Christina. I was, what I wanted to talk about the term sobriety and what that means to me and everybody's brought it up, but the term sobriety is, is really being present. Yes. Um, you know, not using anything that you often say sober from alcohol, drugs and candy bars, but it's truly, it's truly that it's being right sized and knowing that I'm not God living in a, a sober way. And that is, uh, for me, was a result of working the 12 steps. And for me, it was a result of living my life uh, within the principles that I was taught. And if other people can get there the way that they get there, that's great. But there's a lot of times, you know, I was told if you're 20 years sober and still parking in the red zone, <laughs> then you've got some issues, you know, you've got some things. And we've all met the miserable fuck who's, you know, got 30 years of sobriety or abstinence. And I don't think they're the same. And so I, I think everybody has said it in their own special way, but I really hope the more people understand how dangerous alcohol is, how dangerous it is to our bodies and our brains and our souls, the better. So whatever it takes somebody to get there, I do think we're in an age of enlightenment. I do believe that there is an awakening on this planet, especially after the pandemic. And I'm kind of excited to play whatever little part I can. Yeah. Such a good okay, point. I have a question. Yeah. I'm going to go there. Go. You know, I'm going to go there. I know. Go, let's do it. What do we do? What do we, how do we feel about the, the, the new sobriety, the young, the, the people with six months or a year that are online uh, sober coaches selling recovery. I've even had people approach me with me their too. services. And I'm like, <laughs> I've been doing this since before you were born. What are you talking about? Like, I'm not saying they don't have something, but I'm like, what do they think they know? I didn't know shit for the first five years. Mm -hmm. So I'm just, Sometimes I'm very perplexed by what I see online being marketed, but I also like, I don't want to curb their enthusiasm, but there's, mm, this is a life or death thing for a lot of people, right? right so here. it's, yeah. it terrifies me. And so, 
And so I find it incredibly hard sometimes to not be Judge Judy of some of the sober <laughs> Instagram accounts that I see and, and services that I see where it's just like, you know, for $9.95, we're going to go through a five-week program and we're going to get you fixed. And I'm just like, you know, uh, uh, yes. I'm just, and I guess at the end of the day, I'm just glad none of that was available when I got sober because I, I needed to get sober the way that I got sober because I too am motivated by pain uh, and desperation. And when I get in enough pain, I will be motivated to do something. And I fear that if I had had all the options that are out there now, that just would have kept me from getting to my personal bottom that I needed to hit to then recognize that I was the problem. And I don't, I don't know, I just, this, this new sobriety that's out there, although I applaud it and I think it's for the greater good, I gotta tell you, it terrifies me sometimes. Yeah, it, it scares me a bit as well uh, because my definition of sobriety is living a spiritual life, removing the alcohol, removing the substances that are gonna hurt me or my family and friends and Thank you for Christina for bringing up my Snickers bars because, you know, we take away the alcohol, but I still have a disease in my mind that thinks differently and thinks that I'm okay. And if I am not plugged into the ocean of yummy, which I have talked about before on this, on the podcast, I'm doomed. I'm really doomed. So for me, sobriety is, is this spiritual path. And I found it through walking the 12 steps, uh, a spiritual set of guides. But I also found it through Buddhism, right? I went and studied. I find it, now I find it daily through my practice. And at least you bring up this point of these young, <laughs> these young, enthusiastic sober coaches. And yeah, it is terrifying. But I also know that I have to like, let them have their journey and hope that they find the 12 steps like, yeah, yeah. and find another path. Like for me, like it was going down another path to a deeper spiritual well, like what Catherine talks about going down that other, other path with uh, Miguel, right? It's like, we have yeah. to find our way. Go ahead, Catherine. Um, I, I think it's amazing that there are people that can't leave their house, but they can go online and go hang out with other sober moms and talk about the reality of what that means, especially during a pandemic. Yeah, I'm in a group like that. Yeah. And it's not a program, but it's saving people's lives. Right. Um, and the person that started it has like six years sober. And, um, and I'm grateful because I didn't realize that I needed it until I got my butt in there too. And, um, well, and it's I, community, right? It's community. Yeah. It's, it's also, again, like feeling yeah. together. And, and being a single parent and being sober and having a child with Down syndrome, like there's a lot of different nuances with all of that. Yeah. Um, but just to be able to take the mask off on so many levels of masks that moms wear. <laughs> yeah. um, and then the wine mommy culture that's happening online. It's just, yeah. you know, to have a place, a safe place to go, just, I mean, they're in there all day long. Um, all day long, there are meetings all day long and you can see the same people in there all the time. I'm like, 
it has the same effect as a meeting. And so in that regard, you know, when they say three or more, when three or more are gathered, yep. it's a spiritual, I am having the, the experience of that. And, and because I'm in AA, I have, I get to read the things that I, I, I learned from the big book. I'm like, okay, let's read the promises. And they're like, oh my God, I didn't even know about that. I'm like, I know. Right. So, and I think that it's, it's actually incredible. I don't know what it would have been like at 18, had there been all of these opportunities and internet and all of that. I just know that for me, I was on my knees and wanted to die and that I was told treatment was an option. So I checked myself in and didn't want to get checked out ever, you know? So, and I, I do find it interesting when people call themselves experts at a certain amount of recovery. However, but there is a, however, in that, you know, we were we were sponsors at one year too. And we did know things that that person didn't know um, or those people didn't know. Um, and, and there are people that had, I mean, my life changed when a girl that had five years yeah. and did all the things right and could say all the things in the big book and had all the sponsees and looked like somebody I wanted to be yeah. in a nanosecond relapsed and became the opposite. And that's when I realized it wasn't about a program or a book or a meeting it was about a decision no matter fucking what and that the 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 underneath that the the pain that i was in could be resolved and that i needed to find that that place for myself sorry i'm going off on a tangent here but i i do feel like all all roads that lead to my own well-being matter <laughs> they all matter yes they all do and that's why i think there's it's it's exciting but it's terrifying yeah it's oh. awakening it's like holy Toledo's no. all of this is happening right yeah. it's we don't have to a be alone anymore right. the, you know it's like we don't have to be in the closet like drinking while our kids are in another room watching plugged into their iPads yeah it's like we have all kinds of options and opportunities uh we are up at our time and I want to do the rapid fire questions are you ready <laughs> okay here we go uh, these were sent in from our uh, listeners. Here we go. Big book or 12 by 12? 12 by 12. 12, 12 by 12. 12. Big book. Ooh, going old school. Christina? 12 by 12. Oh, okay, here we go. Ice cream or chocolate? Ice cream. Ice cream. Ice cream. Chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> driving fast or driving slow? Driving slow. Not driving. Slow. Uber? <laughs> Jumping into an ice bath or laying in the sun? Laying in the sun. Laying sun. in the sun. Sun. Sober one day or sober forever? All of the above. <laughs> yep. Yep. Forever. Sober forever. Sober forever, forever in a day. Forever in a day. Uh, do we ever really get over our character defects? <laughs> no. They change, I don't think though. So. They change, Some. though. I, I just I have some. a different, I, I feel like it's not character defects. It's just coping with trauma. So I feel like once we take right. responsibility that we're acting that way out of a need to deal with trauma, it's not actually a defect of character. I, I just have like issue yeah. with that. <laughs> Uh, last question. At what age does the routine of life become less surprising? 
I'm still waiting, I think. <laughs> I don't... Waiting. Jury's out. Christina? Yeah, I have years. I have years <laughs> of, of, you know, monotonous, or I can't say the word right now, but you know what I mean? Monotonous yeah. behavior, and then uh, bam, surprise. Yeah. So I, I'm, I'm been around too long to say that there's a real answer for that question. Oh, my dear friends, you have been a delight as always. We are, you know, taking this journey together. That's what we do in recovery. We stay together. We create relationships that matter. I am so greatly, uh, just my heart is filled with joy today. Thanks again for joining us. I hope you enjoyed that episode and don't forget it would help us out so much if you could leave a review, subscribe, and share the show with your friends. And don't forget, we won't be here on Wednesday, but we will see you for another episode of Time Takes Time next Monday. Have a great week.